This is the West Concord Sermon Podcast. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you receive a blessing from today's message. Again, welcome back, Snowbirds. We're glad you had a great week and glad you are back. When I was growing up in Central Florida, we had snowbirds down there too. There's a different thing. I'm glad you're the good kind. This morning, we're going to continue in Revelation. And again, Revelation is the rest of our story. Or more specifically, the rest of his story. One of the things I love to read, I read constantly. I, I just enjoy reading. And, and when I'm reading a novel or a mystery or something like that, I'm very careful not to read the end of the book first because I want to try to figure it out as I go. That's okay with mystery novels and books written by humanity. But God wants us to read the end of the book. He wants us to see what the end of the story is going to be. And he's revealed it in the book of Revelation, hence the name, the Revelation. God tells us the rest of his story, the rest of the story. And we've been making our way through the book of Revelation for a few months, and we're still continuing to do that. And we're coming toward the middle of the end. Revelation begins with literally a revelation of the glorified Christ to the Apostle John late in his life. Then Christ, through John, communicates to seven churches surrounding John in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, sending them letters, letters of encouragement, sometimes letters dealing with their problems. And then as we move into chapters 4 and 5 in Revelation, we're, we're treated to a heavenly worship service where they're singing and shouting and wonderful colors and amazing sounds. And then chapters 6 and following were directed to earth as God brings the final judgment against unbelieving humanity. Scripture tells us the church has been taken out, but there are still saved people. Because God has sealed 144,000 witnesses, 144,000 people in the resistance to go and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. There will be a seven-year period of tribulation and difficulty. The last three and a half years of that period will be even more strict and strident and difficult. I've said before many times, Revelation is a very difficult book to read. It's a difficult book to get through. And it's not because it's difficult to understand. Yes, it's full of metaphor and full of symbolism. But it's also full of reality and truth. And here's the thing about a book in the Bible. God wants us to understand his plan and his purpose. And God is not going to put a book in his Bible to purposely confuse us or to stymie us. God wants us to know him. God wants us to understand his plan for humanity. And so as we approach the book of Revelation, many people, I told you at the beginning, there are two different types of people. There are those people who dislike it or are afraid of it. And then there's unfortunately the group of people that are, that are so titillated by prophecy and all the different machinations of people's imaginations and they love to see god just come barreling down on people and judge those terrible people and burn those terrible people so usually you have the ones who are a little bit frightened and dismayed you have the ones who are cheerleaders for all the nasty stuff and you got to wonder where you fall because as we move into the latter half of that tribulation period we've seen so much as a matter of fact 
as we've looked at chapters 12, 13, and 14 of Revelation, we sort of get God's overview of all the story, in a sense, from a spiritual perspective, all of humanity and all of human history, from the drone perspective. Chapter 12 tells us about Israel, how God raised up a nation all the way back in Genesis through a man by the name of Abraham, raised up a nation who would be his conduits for communicating his truth. And so we see this cosmic battle beginning to form in the world. Now you don't see it and I don't see the physical aspects of it. But as we look at this overview of this cosmic battle that has been going on ever since the fall of Adam and Eve, this spiritual warfare for the hearts and minds of humanity, again, God raised up Israel through Abraham and out of Israel came the church of Jesus Christ, which then spread to the world. Jews and Gentiles alike, the saints of God. And we see all the things that go on there. Chapter 13, we just looked at the last couple of weeks, tell us about the Antichrist when the tribulation period happens. The period wherein God will finally judge the earth for turning its back on him. There will rise up a, a leader, a despot, along the lines of a Hitler, a Stalin who will come and rule the world with a hand of iron. You will not be able to buy or sell without taking his nasty, terrible mark. He will have a false prophet that will promote him and plug him in the media. And he will literally overcome the world. We did see also in chapter 14 the resistance to that. As I mentioned earlier, God raised up witnesses, evangelists, sealed them with his mark, set them apart for the work. And they would go out and will go out and continue to preach the gospel during this very difficult and dark time. And then finally, as we come to the end of chapter 14 today, we get an overview of the final conflict, what the Bible calls a little bit later the Battle of Armageddon, when the world will be united against each other. And then finally in chapter 19, when Christ returns, they will turn their sights upon him. But it'll be a horrible time, a difficult time. If you know Christ as Savior now, you will not be on the receiving end of the terror and the horror. But it is coming, that final conflict. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Basically, God goes ahead and gives us a view of what will be coming. And then we'll take apart the details of it in chapters 15 through 18. But as we look at it this morning, it's interesting as I was preparing this message this week and I was praying about it and studying over it and looking at it. Chapter 14, verses 6 through 20, seems to me as I, as I come away the key to not only understanding the book of Revelation, but it is also the key or, or, or a revealer of the nature of Almighty God. Now understand this about God. He is not like us. We are created in His image, but He is not like us. God has many wonderful attributes and characteristics. Two of the attributes that I think everybody, even the ungodly, the skeptic knows about, is God's love and God's justice. And as we enter into these last passages in chapter 14... We're going to see the aspects of God's love and God's justice. And I talked about those two groups before that either hated and, and were frightened of Revelation 
or they almost went overboard with all of the hatefulness that some believe is engendered by revelation. And the reality is, in this passage, you see the love and justice of God. Now, all those, those two groups, both of them fall into one of those viewpoints. They, there's one group that just says God is love, and God is love. It says as much in 1 John chapter 4. God is love, and, and all love. God is ultimate love. God is true love, pure love. But then there's also the narrative that tells us that God is also just. And because of his justness, he must bring judgment. And there are those who love that aspect of God. They just seem everybody's an enemy and all these people that disagree with God will just take them out, God, burn them. And they get, they get a little bit militant, oftentimes way too much so. And here's the reality. These two attributes of God are his attributes. God is love and God is just. But they are not mutually exclusive, using a mathematical term. In other words, God is not just all love or all justice. He is both love and justice. And these two things work in concert together as he moves among humanity and, and works in the world. And I think in chapter 14, where we're going to look this morning, verses 6 through 20, we're going to see those aspects of God's character almost separated so we could understand them better. And we see them all through the book of Revelation. Yes, God is love. And if you look for it, you see those aspects of God's love and grace and mercy. We'll see it again this morning in Revelation. But God is also just. And God must judge sin. He must judge those that sin and reject him. If he did not do that, he would not be God. He would not be deity. And so this morning, as we talk about the love of God and the justice of God, it's not one fighting against the other. They come together. And I think, and I, and I want to submit this this morning. If you and I could truly understand the commingling of God's love and justice, if we can accept both aspects of his nature, it will open up the Bible more clearly. It'll help us to understand books like Revelation more fully. And it will help us to see God moving in the world and in our lives. I honestly believe if we understand the nature of God's love and justice as it really is portrayed in Scripture as he's revealed it, I honestly believe that is the key to understanding the truth of Almighty God. Take your Bibles with me and go to Revelation chapter 14. We talked about the great resistance as, as the nation comes under, or as the world rather, comes under this dictator, this antichrist who will control the world via a mark and be ungodly, hateful, cruel, persecuting the people of God, the Jews, the saved Jews, and the Christians. God has raised up a resistance, much like as we celebrated Independence Day last week. There was a resistance to the crown of England. Much like in World War II, the French people, after Hitler invaded their country, there was a resistance of the regular people who stood against Nazism and helped the Allies to defeat Hitler. So also during this time of this great dictator, there'll be a grand resistance of godly people, witnesses, evangelists, who've been sealed, marked, and set apart for the work of God in leading people to Christ. People will get saved 
during the tribulation period. As a matter of fact, the passage we're going to look at this morning actually uses the word gospel, good news, in this passage. So let's take it apart. And, and, and we're going to see two groups of three angels in this passage. And these three, two groups of three angels are going to reveal the nature of God. They're going to reveal the fact that God is love, just and merciful, love, gracious and merciful. But the last three angels are also going to demonstrate the justice of God and the nature of God, which must judge sin because God is perfect. As we look at these first three angels, we are calling them this morning, the rallying angels. And they demonstrate to us the love of God in this difficult time. Verse six, it says, John says, after seeing the resistance that has been raised up, he says, then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel, the good news, the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. This first angel, this rallying angel comes as we come to the climax of this grand cosmic battle. As we get ready to see the beginning and as we have begun the seven, last three and a half years of this tribulational period. The first angel brings a plea. Shouting the good news, the gospel. That's what the word gospel means. It means good news. That's what God tasked those evangelists with, the 144,000 with the good news. And this angel pleads with humanity to turn back to God, to fear God, to honor Him. He pleads with them because justice is coming. Yes, this is a time where God judges the unbelieving world and He judges them harshly and fully. But as I like to say, oftentimes we still see the gracious, loving hand of God reaching out and saying, there's still time. There's still time. For those on one side of the argument that says revelation is nothing but a bunch of hateful, violent, dramatic judgments from an angry God, really. It has some of that in there, but it also demonstrates the grace and the love of Almighty God. Who even though judgment is right and righteous... He still extends the hand to those who would rather spit in his eye. He still calls to them and begs them, please come. And he's sharing that good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. So the first angel is, is pleading with them. His judgment is coming. So he's saying, come and worship him who made heaven and the earth, the sea and the fresh water. And then we see a second angel. Chapter 14, verse 8. And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. That great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Now, this is something we're going to get into. As, this is, again, just a drone, a bird's eye view, a drone's view. We're going to get into the details later on in the next few weeks. But the city of Babylon, always in Scripture, in the Old Testament, all the way back in Genesis at the Tower of Babel in chapter 11, all the way here to the book of Revelation is a reference to, first of all, a literal city. No longer exists today, but at one point it was the capital of the Babylonian Empire. 
If you read the book of Daniel, Babylon is the central city there. As a matter of fact, you can still go to Iraq and see the ruins of Babylon. That's where it was, and that's where the ruins are. But Babylon is also pictured as a type or a model of every godless Gentile world power that has come. After the Babylonians, it was the Persians and the Medes. After the Persians and Medes, it was the Greeks. After the Greeks, in John's day, it was the Romans. And often the word Babylon, the name Babylon, referred to Rome itself as the seat of power in that godless, oppressive, tyrannical system. And the word Babylon continues to refer to the center of Gentile power, godless power ruling the nations. The Bible tells us, and we'll see this as we get into this later on, that the Roman Empire never really died, but still exists. Europe still exists in the way that Rome had carved it out. And while Rome itself is no more a really great capital, nonetheless, that world system that continued from the time of Nimrod and Nebuchadnezzar until now, godlessness, human power, human pride, all against God. We're still building towers of Babel in our world today. But the angel here gives, that second angel comes and he gives another thing. He gives a declaration. He's saying, look, this world system that you have trusted, this world economic system, this world system of materialism and greed and selfishness, the world governments that are apart from God that, that, has, that has basically enamored humanity all the way back to the book of Genesis, it is time to fall. The world economic system, the world monetary system, the world system of materialism and success, he said it's false. As a matter of fact, in the original Hebrew, they did not have punctuation or exclamation points per se. So if they wanted to emphasize it, they would repeat it twice or three times. This world system, we, we talk about our governments and the United Nations and the nations of the world and, and, and the great economic powers. Well, at this time, at one point, they are going to fall and they are going to crumble. And the angel is giving this declaration and saying, look, don't put your trust in human systems or governments because they're falling, they're coming down. And so he's telling them, turn to God. Look to God. So we have a plea, we have a declaration, and then we have a warning as we get to the third angel, verse 9. A third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone... Worships the beast, that's again, we referred to him in chapter 13, the Antichrist, as he's more popularly known today. If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He, is, he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. That is a warning coming from that angel. He's warning the people of that future time. Don't take the mark of the beast. And if you've taken it, you've turned your back upon God. And there is judgment coming. And that sounds difficult. He's speaking of eternal judgment, tormenting judgment, separation from God forever. There are people today that say, well, there is no hell. 
That's not what the Bible says. And it's not fun talking about hell. It's not fun reading about hell. How can God assign people to hell? Well, they have broken the Word of God. They have rejected the Gospel of Christ. They have rejected the Savior. And understand this, God is an eternal God. He's an everlasting being. He is without beginning and He is without end. It's not just some religious thing. It is reality. And rejection of an eternal God brings eternal punishment. You see, we don't like that aspect of it. It, it ruffles us because that doesn't sound like a loving God. Well, God is also just and God is judged. But here's the aspect of the loving God. He provided a way to escape that. He didn't give us another religion. He didn't give us another series of commands or statutes. He sent himself. He clothed himself in flesh and lived life among us. And after three and a half years of ministry, he was nailed to the bloody, awful cross of Mount Calvary. Jesus Christ is our escape. Jesus died, but three days later, he rose again from the dead. And the Bible says all who come to him admitting their sin and casting their full faith and confidence on him, God will save them. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast, Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2. And just like here in Revelation, he's providing these angels, these three rallying angels to say, Hey, this is serious. Time is running out. I'm here to tell you good news. I want you to know that God still loves you. God still wants you. Christ died for you. Fear him, worship him, honor him. The other angel saying, look, this world system that you're tied up in now, it's going to fall. And, it, and, and we can receive that same message today. Again, we got an election coming up next year. Everybody hopes that whoever gets in the White House will solve all of our troubles. And let me tell you again, it doesn't matter if a Republican gets in there. It doesn't matter if a Democrat gets in there. I'll tell you who needs to be in the White House is God. That's what the problems are. And I'll tell you how God gets there. God's people start living like they actually believe God. If you want to redeem the White House, start with your house. And i got to start with my house. And here's the angel demonstrating, these three angels rather. They're rallying the people and they're telling them, Look, this cosmic battle is coming to a climactic conclusion. You still can come. Demonstrating the love of God. The plea, the declaration, the warning. And then we have an interlude. We stop with another one of those interludes. And we see one of those beatitudes. In Sunday school this morning, we talked about the beatitudes, the blessings that are inherent in an attitude surrendered to God. And just as an encouragement to those who are undergoing persecution in John's day, those who still are persecuted in our day, and those who will be existing during this difficult time on earth in the future, he says this, verse 12. He said, here is the patience of the saints. He's calling the saints to endurance, actually, is how this can be better translated into the English. The word patience means endurance. And he's saying, here is how you endure the saints. Who are the saints? Those who are saved through faith in Christ. If you're here and you know Jesus, you're a saint. 
That means simply sanctified or set apart, made holy by God. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus Christ. He's encouraging him. This is the endurance. And so he's basically telling them in this interlude of encouragement, be patient. Be patient and endure. Because again, as we saw in Matthew 5 this morning during Sunday school, and if you weren't here, you missed it. In Matthew 5, during the Sunday school hour, we saw that the attitude of surrender and submission to God brings blessedness. Even in the midst of difficult, ungodly, horrendous dictatorship and totalitarian government, in the midst of a horrible tribulation, you still see blessedness by people who are willing to yield and surrender to the Lord. He's saying that's how you endure. And what are the results of that? He says in verse 13, I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. This is one of the series of different beatitudes in the book of Revelation. Those who yield their lives to Christ and are killed for their faith, the moment they pass from this earth into next, it's bliss and splendor with God. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. As they strive and struggle during that difficult time, dying in the Lord will bring a rest from that struggle and a rest from that labor. Every time I do a funeral of a brother or sister in Christ, I sometimes think on this passage because I'm thinking, yes, it's sad, we're broken, we're grieved when we lose somebody we love. But if that person knows Christ, they've been set free. And they're enjoying life in ways that we cannot even comprehend right now. They're in the presence of God. They're falling into the nail-scarred hands and arms of our Savior. They're united. What a thing, man. And, and think about these people who are going to endure this hardship and difficulty. God is one, gonna, one day when they pass from this world to next. What a release. What a, what a time. So he's encouraging them, even in this difficult time that they're going through, this time of dictatorship, drama, dilemma, as they yield to the Lord, and then that might cost them their lives. We think that's some imaginary future, but listen, there are brothers and sisters right now that are dying for their testimony of Christ in this world today. China has reared its communist an ugly head against the church in China. And there are Chinese Christians who are dying today even as we speak. There are believers in Indonesia when they're discovered by, their, by the Muslim government are being killed and imprisoned. There are people that are dying even today. There always have been. But the moment they pass from the tribulation and trouble, they receive rest and reward. And that's as we move through this life. <laughs> we think we're having trouble. We don't know what trouble is. As we move through this life and deal with its difficulties and problems, understand this. If we rest and are pa or rather patient in the Lord, there will be blessedness. You saw that in chapter 5 of Matthew this morning. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are hungry for, uh, hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who are pure in heart. For they shall see God. 
Blessed are those who are persecuted and reviled, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What's going on here is nothing compared to the bliss and glory we're going to experience later with God. So those are the three rallying angels. Those three rallying angels demonstrate the, the unmerited love of God. They demonstrate that in the midst of this horrible time of judgment, God still loves them. Let's look at the reaping angels because that's the love of God. That's one aspect of God's character. Matter of fact, we like that part of it. But the next verses, verses 14 through 20, give us the justice aspect of God's nature. Because as God holds out his love, shouts his love from the throats of angels, believe it or not, there are still people who are going to reject that. I mean, today you and I are tasked with going out and sharing the gospel. And oftentimes I have to ask myself, why would anybody want to listen to me? But imagine if an angel came to share the gospel. Oh man, pastor, people would believe right and left. If all of a sudden angels descended from heaven and decided to preach the gospel, and man, we'd have a revival. Really? As I read Revelation, there are still people that turn their backs upon God, or if they do interact with Him, they shake their fists at Him, even in the midst of that kind of activity. So yes, God is love. But God is also just. And in the next three angels that are come, these are the reaping angels. And they are to reap judgment in the world on behalf of God. Look what it says in verse 14. This is a difficult passage. I understand that. Then I looked and behold a white cloud. And on that cloud sat one like the Son of Man. Speaking of Jesus, having on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle. This is Jesus Christ himself. He is called the Son of Man throughout Scripture, specifically in the book of Luke. The Gospel of Luke refers to him as the Son of Man. The Old Testament often will call him the Son of Man in prophetic Scripture. This is Jesus himself. So as we look at this, the first angel is representative of the judge. Jesus Christ is the ultimate judge of humanity, saved and unsaved. You might go out and become judgmental and cut somebody down because they make this choice or slap somebody down because they went that direction. But here's the thing. One day you and I aren't going to be sitting on that judgmental throne. It's going to be God. We're going to be standing before it. I am not God and neither are you. And Jesus is the judge in this instance. The same Jesus who walked among his people, the same Jesus who preached, taught, healed, and loved, the same Jesus who died for us, was buried and rose again from the dead, is now on his throne in heaven, and he is the judge. God is love, but God is also just. And so he's, he's, he's got a sickle in his hand. What is a sickle? Well, we live in 2023. Most of us really don't know what a sickle is unless you saw it on Russia or Chinese flag at one point. But back in the day, before the 20th century and the invention of gas-powered motors, you had to mow your yard with a push mower that had no motor on it. I don't know about you, sometimes mine feels like it doesn't have a motor on it. I think the problem is I don't have a motor in me. But years ago, they would also take this sickle, which was, had a big broad handle, you could put two hands on it, and it had a blade that came out like a half moon. And what you would do is you would go through your yard and you would swing that. It had to be sharp enough to cut the grass. 
I want to see somebody try that. If you're going to do that, call me. I'd like to watch it happen. I'm not going to do it, but if you want to get froggy and do that, go ahead. It is a lot of work, but you would take that sickle and you would take that thing and you would swing it. And you would take out whatever grass or whatever weeds. It would just go whap and swipe it all down and fall. God's judgment is symbolized by this sickle. And so we see this first angel representing Christ himself as the judge. And Christ is sitting on the cloud ready to make judgment and he's holding that sickle in his hand. So we see the judge. Second angel, verse 15, or rather the, the uh, fifth angel. And another angel came out of the temple, crying, the temple of heaven, crying with a loud voice and to him who sat on the cloud. He's crying to Christ who sat on the cloud. He says, thrust in your sickle and reap for the time has come. For you to reap the harvest of the earth, for you to reap for the harvest of the earth is right. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Again, this is speaking of the severe judgment that is coming. This sickle wasn't a building tool, it was a reaping tool. In ancient Israeli culture, and sometimes they still do this over there from what I understand, they grow vineyards and grapes. And back before mechanization, the best way to do it was to take a sickle and go through there and cut them all down. You've heard of the phrase, the grapes of wrath. Well, this is where it comes from. God's wrath against the sinful, God's wrath against the godless. And it's literally pictured with a sickle being thrust into the earth. And so as we see this second angel of the reaping angels, we see the actual judgment that God is now going to fully and completely judge the earth in this final conflict, this final conflagration. And then we see the third angel or the sixth angel, verse 18, the third reaping angel. And another angel came out from the altar who had the power over fire and he cried with a, uh, cried, uh, with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle saying, thrust in your sharp sickle. And gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth, and they gathered the vine of the earth, and threw it into the winepress of the wrath of God. This is very dramatic, very explicit. It goes on to say in verse 20, And the winepress was trampled outside the city. What they would do is after they reaped the harvest, they would take the grapes and they would put them in a wine press and they either had a stone to press it or if they didn't have that mechanism, they'd do it like you saw people do in earlier times. The famous I Love Lucy episode where Lucy gets in the vat and steps on the grapes and has a fight. Okay, well that's how they would press out the grapes. And so you would go in there and you would crush those grapes and it would bring grape juice and that grape juice would be filtered out and that would be your wine. Can you imagine here have a glass of foot wine? No, thank you. I don't think so. <laughs> but that's what they did. Think of this judgment. It's a very, very difficult and graphic picture. Verse 20. And the wine press was trampled outside the city, and blood came out of the wine press up to the horses' bridles for 1,600 furlongs, or literally about 184 miles. 
The blood from this judgment rose so high. Now that sometimes is interpreted differently. You can imagine how many people would have to suffer for blood to rise that high, that far. Typical horse's furlong would be five to six feet. 184 miles. Now some scholars have interpreted it as being that's how high the blood splattered on the gate. Whether it's interpreted one way or another, it's graphic, it's difficult to read. But this is the reality of it, folks. Yes, God is love, but God is also just. God takes life seriously. God takes sin seriously. God created humanity to love them and to spend eternity with them as they worshipped Him and as they enjoyed His presence. But pride was introduced into humanity and humanity fell. And at that point, God could have just said, forget it. But remember, God is love. And he created a plan wherein he could redeem humanity through faith in his Messiah, which the Old Testament looks forward to and the New Testament reveals and we look backward to. Jesus Christ. See, here's the thing that displays the love of God. God allowed himself, taking on flesh, to be beaten, whipped, crushed, tortured, nailed to a cross so his blood might flow. His death on the cross provided salvation to all who would believe, no matter who or what you are. That is the love of God. And he provided in such a way the salvation to where he fulfilled all of its requirements. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Jesus died. In this we see the judge, the judgment, and the judged. The grapes of wrath, those grapes are the, are the, are the denizens of the world who have rejected God. Who have rejected Christ. And God will one day reap them and crush them. And the blood represented demonstrates how widespread this judgment is. It's, it's, it's hard to read. But this is the aspect of God we don't want to look at or think about. But again, in this passage, you see six angels, not just three. You see rallying angels who give another opportunity, another chance. Come. Come to Christ. Fear God. This is the good news. This world that you're trusting in one day will go away. Judgment is coming. Those who take the mark of the beast and serve him will be judged and slaughtered. Don't let that happen to you. Come. So we see in this passage the dual nature of God. Love and justice. And again, these aren't separated. They're not mutually exclusive. Humanity sinned and spat in the eye of divinity. But God, because of his love, even though he must judge sin, he wanted to save humanity. But because sin had to be judged, he became a human. And he endured the rigors and the horrors and the agony and the embarrassment of a cross and a death on the cross. Three days later, he rose again. 
And he offers salvation to all, anyone, anywhere who will accept it by faith. We come to him admitting our sin. We all have. I've sinned. You have. We all have sinned. We confess our sin. We own our sinfulness. Realizing that there is nothing we can do, nothing religious, nothing moral, no amount of change, no amount of turn. We fall at his nail-scarred feet and trust him and place our faith not just in him but on him as our Savior. Believing in Christ is one thing, but believing on Christ is salvation. And God saves us and we don't become part of this crowd. If you don't know Christ, I beg you to trust him as soon as possible today, right now. But if you do know Christ, here's the thing that we oftentimes don't want to think about. What family member or friends have rejected Christ or don't know Christ that you could be the conduit for getting them the gospel? Yes, God is love and God loves them, but God must judge sin. He's provided a way through his love and his justice to escape that judgment. But he's depending upon his people to communicate that message. Very difficult passage, rallying angels and the reaping angels. The two natures of God are the two aspects of one, the God, nature of God. The justice, the reaping angels, represents the justice of God. John Oakes, scholar and professor, said this, when speaking of his love and his justice, he says his love says that if he wants us to love him, his love says that he wants us to love him and he wants to love us. And he wants us to experience a relationship with him forever. That's the love of God. But his justice says that sin deserves consequences. And the wages of sin are death, Romans 3.23. Now, interestingly enough, God himself paid those wages. He took on flesh. He didn't deserve it. He was perfect. He died on the cross in place of us. Your, heaven, your way to heaven, my way to heaven, your way to a relationship with God is paid for, yet people still reject. He goes on to say, we all believe or we hope that God should be just. I mean, let's face it. We look at the world and we think somebody should do something. Skeptics say, where there is no God because look how evil the world has become. Where is God? Why doesn't he get rid of evil? And then we talk about God finally and ultimately getting rid of evil. They say, oh, he's a despot and a tyrant. You can't have it both ways. We all believe or hope that God should be just. We also all believe or hope that God is loving. Well, fortunately, he goes on to say, God is both. God is both loving and he's just. How does God's love and justice work together? This is the beauty and miracle of the gospel of Christ. Revelation chapter 14, the best physical representation of that, one more time, is the cross of Calvary. The cross of Calvary in and of itself is a bloody, violent, off-putting, horrendous thing. It's, it's terrible. If you've ever saw the movie The Passion, I only could watch that movie one time. I can't watch it again. 
And, in, and even in all of its explicit nature, it doesn't reveal how crucifixion actually worked. If they were to do crucifixion the way they did it 2,000 years ago and put it on the movie screen, it would be rated X. Because more often than not, they crucified the, the, the perpetrators naked to provide more humiliation and embarrassment. And that would probably be how Jesus died. It's a very difficult scene to see. That's what sin does. That's why God must judge sin. And he did so on the cross. But God's love is there because he did that for you and for me. Jesus died a death he didn't, shouldn't have had died. He's God. He's eternal. But he tasted death for you and me. Jesus paid a price that he said he wanted to pay. But you know what? He didn't owe anything. You ever caught yourself saying that's not fair? When you're a little kid, hey, they took the bigger cake, that's not fair. He got first in line, that not, that's not fair. She got the nicer, that's not fair. Oh, we say it today as adults, we just don't say it that way. You know what, Jesus Christ dying on the cross for my sins, to him, that wasn't fair. He didn't do anything wrong, but he took the blame for me. Revelation chapter 14 tells us about the love of God and the grace of God, but it tells us of the judgment of God. You have to understand both or you won't understand anything. If you want to understand Revelation, understand the love and justice of God. If you want to understand the Bible, understand the love and justice of God. God is love. God is just. What is the key? Listen to the rallying angels. Run to him. Flee to him. Reverentially fear him and respect him. Trust in him. And avoid the judgment of Almighty God. The cross of Christ is the culmination of the love and justice of God. Let's stand with our heads bowed and eyes closed. I honestly believe that a rigorous and right understanding of the nature of God will open up scriptures to you in ways that you cannot imagine. Understanding the love and justice of God, they're commingling and working together Instead of making Revelation frightening or cringy, makes Revelation reasonable and understandable. Not just the book of Revelation, but the entire Bible. Old Testament and New. As we try to make sense of the world, we see the world as God sees it. And we begin to see God new and fresh. And as he is portrayed and, yes, revealed in Scripture. Do you know Christ as Savior this morning? Have you trusted him? Your sin and my sin is repugnant to God. It's filthy. It repulses him. His, his divine perfect nature cannot abide sin. He must judge sin. But he provided a way to escape that judgment by being judged himself. Jesus took your sin and my sin upon his cross. Uh, his cross. God in the flesh. He paid that death payment. The wages of sin is death. He paid the wages. He received that judgment he died and was buried and three days later he rose again from the dead and if you will simply abandon your own hopes of saving yourself and cast your full faith confidence upon him 
God will save you and give you everlasting life. God's spirit will come in and dwell in you and you begin to walk with him and live for him as your Lord. Would you trust him this morning if you've never done that? You can do it in your heart. You can just tell God, yes, I'm a sinner. I deserve hell. I can't save myself. I'm trusting you. There are no special words. You just tell him however you can. Talk to him, but most importantly, trust him as your savior. If you do know Christ, this is real. This, is, this stuff is coming. This book is necessary because it is the word of God and he doesn't put books in the Bible just to confuse us. He wants us to know about him and his plan for the future and the culmination of history. There is nobody I want to see go through this. Is there anybody you want to see go through this? I don't want to see the worst despot in the world go through this. That's why God has called us to be like that 144,000. We are the resistance today. Marked by our faith in Christ, set aside by the call of Christ to go do the work of Christ, and that is to share the gospel and to glorify God. Keep playing games, keep messing around. You'll suffer the consequences and those you love will. But God is calling us through his word to fully fall upon his altar, surrender and become living sacrifices. Not conform to this world, but allow God to transform us by renewing our mind and making our mind his mind and making his mind our mind. My brother and sister, what are you doing? What am I doing? Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for the beautiful music that raised up and glorified your name this morning. Father, we thank you for our students and those who went with them that they got to go to Snowbird and be challenged and, and get so much good study and teaching. Thank you for those people at Snowbird who are surrendered and committed to teaching your word and committed to you. Father, I pray that those students would change our church culture. Father, I pray for us as a church that we would, we would stop messing around and we would get serious about serious things. But most importantly, Lord, help us to understand you as you've revealed yourself and as you really are, both loving and just. I pray that everyone in the sound of my voice knows Christ as Savior, and if they don't, they would trust him and get their questions answered so they can. And I pray for those who are here who know Christ that we would begin to see the world through the lenses of the book of Revelation. And we would be the rallying cry here. We would be the preview to the 144,000. We would share the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Burden us, I pray, and bless us at the same time. For we ask all of this in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. For additional sermon resources and to find out who we are, visit us online at westconcordchurch.com. Thanks for listening.